up, Craig? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your uh, movies and reviews podcast. I am one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corwin Eller. <laughs> you get distracted? Um, you cut out a bit and then it all kind of jumped back in together. And so it was just like you talking a mile a minute and it was, I thought it was immediately after you stopped talking, but... <laughs> With our internets, who fucking knows? Yeah, yeah, truly. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, we're talking about the 2014 film Birdman and the uh, 1954 film On the Waterfront this week. Uh, Corwin, do you have any place you would like to start? Uh, yeah, let's start with On the Waterfront. You got it. Uh, so On the Waterfront from 1954 was directed by Ilya Kazan. Uh, written by Bud Schulberg, based on the Bud Schul- Schulberg uh, story, starring Marlon Brando, Carl Malden, and Lee J. Cobb. Um, it had, I, I know he's always around. Um, it had an estimated budget of nine hundred ten thousand dollars, and a uh, box off a cumulative worldwide gross of nine point six million. Um, so that's successful. Um, it was uh, its tagline. Almost skipped the best part. Uh, its tagline was "The man lived by the jungle law of the docks." That's not okay. a good tagline. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's a tagline. I don't know if it was for this movie, but it's a tagline. It feels too whimsical for how serious this movie is. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh, it won eight Oscars on the back of 12 nominations. It wow. won for uh, Best Picture for Sam Spiegel, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Marlon Brando, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Eva Eva Marie Saint, mm-hmm. Best Director for Elia Kazan, Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay for Bud Schulberg, Best Cinematography, Black and White. This is back when the Oscars had two different cinematography awards, one for Black and White, one for Color, um, for Boris Kaufman, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Black and White. This, again, one of the split category Oscars. Uh, for Richard Day. And Best Film Editing for Gene Milfer. Those were the winners. They were also nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Lee J. Cobb. Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Carl Malden. Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Rod Steiger. And Best Music Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture for Leonard Bernstein. So they were nominated for three <laughs> out of what I must assume is like five um, nominees for Best Actor in Supporting Role and none of them won. Mm. The winner that year was Edmund O'Brien for the Barefoot Contessa. Gross. The, the other nominee was Tom Tully for the Cane Mutiny. There's only three nominees? No, there was five, but the other three. Oh, so right, right, Ed, right, right, right. Yeah, so no. it was Edmund O'Brien for the Barefoot Contessa, Tom Tully for the Cane Mutiny, and then Lee J. Cobb, Rod Steiger, and Carl oh. Malden of On the Waterfront. Me dumb, yes. Jesus Christ. Wow. Um, hey, hey, Barefoot Contest is a good movie. <laughs> Any, Never seen movie. it, so. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart, my guy. Um, you do love Humphrey. So, On the Waterfront is about an ex-prize fighter turned longshoreman who struggles to stand up to his corrupt union bosses. Uh, so, this is my pick, so uh, I'll get started. This is this is a, um, an American classic. Um, it is. It comes from, like, the really 
heavy period of like old Hollywood in the 50s. Ilya Kazan was doing really interesting work with Tennessee Williams at the time. He was very involved in Marlon Brando, launching Marlon Brando's career. Um, and so this is a really great combination of the the weightiness that Elia Kazan brought to the films that he made and Marlon Brando really flourishing and, and finding his groove um, as an actor and kind of pivoting a little bit away from just the the sex appeal Brando into like, I am a really fucking good actor, Marlon Brando, um, without ever having to really force it, which is I fucking love Marlon Brando. Mm. Um, and in addition to the like deep, mysterious tone of the film, it moves like the plot moves. It is mm-hmm. engaging. It, it engages with the aspects of uh, crime and justice, with aspects of religion and morality. Um, you know, the usual love story that you will always get in these 1950s films, as we talked about with um, Bridge on the River Kwai. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it, it even does that in an interesting way. And it really puts Marlon Brando in a very interesting situation in which he has to confront these different parts of his life, his life that are tugging at him in very opposed directions as he decides what to do between um, ratting out the union bosses that have given him uh, a relatively decent income comparative to what everyone else you see is, is having to deal with. Uh, versus what his that the girl he he likes wants him to do because of her interest because her brother died, and versus what the the priest wants him to do because you know God, uh, so it and it does all that without it feeling forced. Like the conversations with the priest aren't preachy. The mm-hmm. conversations with the girlfriend aren't. They're they're a little melodramatic because it's just it's just going to be, but they're not. Because women not... and all those hormones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those them them damn vaginas. Um, but <laughs> but like it's not it's not cringy, and the scenes with the union boss aren't overly like caricatured. Right, like Lee, Lee J. Cobb is very much you know a very energetic and emotional actor in this you know film and you know, the role he plays, but it, it at no point feels over the top. It feels fitting for what he needs to be. Right. This film balanced all of what it wants to do very well. Um, so I said a lot and I'm sure I stole so, some of Corwin's thunder because I talked so fucking much. Um, but I'm excited to keep talking about it. Um, so Corwin, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah. I mean, no, please feel free to talk as often and as much as you want. Um, you know the rules around here. I fuck it up when I talk, so when you talk, uh, it goes better. Um, that being said, I really love the trio. Well, I guess the quintuple of Lee. Uh, wow, Lee Jacob. I forgot the mill initial, and it just completely <laughs> yeah, Lee just Cobb erased my memory. Right. Yeah, um, Elliot. <laughs> Wow, I am truly amazed after that start that I made it through all four of those names without having to look at what I wrote down. Wow, I was just through for a loop, thrown for a loop. That is proper English. Um, regardless, I love all four of them individually. Having having them all together in an ensemble is fantastic, especially you know being released at a time when Marlon Brando still gave a shit. 
because uh, that's you know the biggest thing, honestly. Um, but I just I love having all four. Even Marie Saint, you know, I'm sure I would be a superstar back in the 50s and 40s in the film industry. So I'm thinking there could still be a chance for us. But that being said, uh, it, it's a truly powerful acted when it comes to the acting involved it's incredibly strong uh, emotionally uh, and dramatically and I, I really never appreciated it the first time I, I saw it i saw it for the story and, and what it was presented not necessarily how powerful the acting performances were and how much that carried the story um because by all means you know especially back in this era like it could be a little soapy you know it, it Things can get a little dramatic and over the top, but like you said, it it never felt forced. It never felt um, unnecessary or out of place, um, and I really do appreciate that. Um, and you know, I I'm glad this is a film that I saw back in the day, a long time ago, and enjoyed to begin with. And then you know, because Birdman, spoiler alert, even though we talked about it last episode. It's a film that I had seen previously and did not like. This is a movie I had seen previously and still very much enjoyed. Um, and I'm very glad to have been able to go back and enjoy it even more afterwards. Yeah, I think that's a, that, yeah. that's, that's a common phenomenon that you and I, I'm sure, have experienced greatly. Because it's one of those things, which is a phrase both of us say very frequently, one of those things. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, you probably grew up watching, or you and I anyway, grew up watching a lot of classic movies because our parents liked classic movies, so we watched classic movies. And you didn't realize how good they were until you watched movies trying to do what those classic movies did, but like way worse. And then you go back to the classic ones, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, this is really fucking good. Like, we've seen the worst version of this movie like in other shittier, you know, mob movies or like, murder romance mystery movies or whatever um absolutely yeah so like to see to see the original and see it done so fucking well is a great reminder of like oh yeah like like to see the worst versions of it to have that comparative and then revisit it later on be like oh yeah that's why my dad keeps fucking watching this movie it's a great fucking movie Mm -hmm. absolutely oh i know any uh plot points or any specifics that you want to dive into First, we should shout out the fact that this takes place in our own backyard. This is a New Jersey movie. We never get to have Jersey wow. movies. This is Hoboken, New Jersey. Birthplace of Frank Sinatra. That's right. Fuck you, New York City, for claiming him. Is that, Sinatra's a Jersey boy, and I don't even fuck with Italians that heavy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have a Jersey movie, and this is a really interesting point. Um compared to where Hoboken is today. So you see this movie, and Hoboken is still a pretty big port town. It has one of the biggest ports in uh, on the East Coast, especially in the Northeast. Um, New York still, New York City still has several, um, but Hoboken is still a very central one because it's, at, because it's not in the city, and that's been an advantageous point due to real estate issues. But anyway, because um, Hoboken today is not a blue-collar town. No, Hoboken God, today no. is like a I'm 26 and weirdly rich and I want to live someplace fun. 
Yes. Yeah, like Hoboken's the place. I many people live in Hoboken. That is, I, I know many people who live in Hoboken now, and are in this demographic, and it fits that stereotype to a T. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's what it is. So to see it like that is 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 pretty different, and to see this era of 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 middle class or or lower middle class working class life is also very interesting because this is this is something that i don't think really exists in this form anymore uh, which i think really adds to the intrigue for for us watching it at in this point in time because the idea that because like the so the basic the, the the life of this movie is you have a bunch of people who work on the waterfront they work on the docks and the union boss comes around every day and distributes um, tokens, like like literal like fucking coins, like tokens that say that you're allowed to work today. And he'll he'll give them to some people he likes, and then he'll like throw some people to make everyone like fight over them. And if you got one, you got to work, which means you got to get paid. Uh, you get to get paid. Um, and if you don't, you fucking go home and like hope that you get work later on. And that was just what you like. That was it. Your livelihood was controlled by a dude whose decision making was either um, like quid pro quo or just absolute fucking random and chaos right. and, and it's not like you know 18 year old kid living with their parents you know hey i don't have to go to work today i get the day off it's like no like i don't eat tonight because i didn't get paid to buy food right like some of these people like fight over coats like like it's it it, it it's it's life or death and in, in, in a lot of ways whether you get to work um and, and this is and this is the 50s like this is the golden era of of the american economy in a lot of other places um, this isn't even like the Great Depression, you know. So, to 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 live in in that type of environment as a viewer of the film also adds a lot to the intrigue because it really is this fascinating point um, in time that we don't like because we see a lot of Great Depression stuff and we see a lot of Golden Era stuff, but this feels like the Great Depression during the Golden Era, in which golden is era. just so odd. Um, and and it it also is a great setting of the stage for why Brando's going to end up in the position he's in because you you see how destitute the life is and here he is doing his best to make it as a fighter and the thing about trying to make it as a boxer or any athlete anywhere is that chances are you won't make it and so you have to kind of keep your unless you're big time already you got to kind of keep your options open as to what you're willing to do for work, which means that Brando is out here working the docks and he's liked, so he gets tokens. So he, while he's not living comfortable, isn't destitute like a lot of the others around mm -hmm. the, uh, the he, dock. He office. has family on the inner circle of these, uh, the union. All right, what's his brother's name? Charlie? Charlie. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, he he benefits. He also like threw a fight for for the union boss. Like that's uh, a big thing too. Um, at one point, to help the union boss get a payout, Lee J Cobb get the payout. Mm -hmm. um, but there was you it know, Johnny Friendly. Yes, Johnny Friendly, <laughs> a one gangster name. No, I I disagree completely. I think that's awful, <laughs> uh, gangster union boss name. That is I, very I, unfitting of a union boss. Allow me to clarify. A1 1950s <laughs> mm. whimsical gangster name. 
Okay, 1950s union boss movie stereotype name. Yeah, I'm with you there. Okay. Um, we are on the same page. Yeah, it's it so fucking funny. Um, at least they didn't make too many jokes about it. <laughs> Real friendly guy. <laughs> um, anyway. And, you know, that alone could have been the entire fucking movie. You, you know, like like just seeing Brando have to deal with the loose concept that the union bosses are fucked up dudes and that they are working in some ways directly against his ability to make the big times by asking him to throw fights, holding the power they do over, over the economy of his entire fucking town um, while he tries to make it on his own. That could have been the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Probably should have been. You th- <laughs> make a really boring, awful movie. I don't know. I, I think there's enough there that that could have been interesting, but the the fact that this, I mean, the, the murder it like happened so early in the movie. Before, yeah, I mean, it's the opening scene. Yeah, I was just saying, like before you really get any of the stage setting, and the idea that 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 story structure is fucking fascinating because I sometimes like you know I'd be watching like the you know the early sequences, like, especially you know the the, the 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 scene where he's actually throwing the fucking coins. Um, always like sticks with me and I'll get to that scene and I'll like forget that there was a murder to start this movie (laughs) (laughs) because like I'm so enamored with what's happening there Um, that by the time they like actually bring the murder back in and you know you know Eva St. Clair or Eva Marie Saint is like someone kill my brother Um, and 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 Marlon Brando's like damn she's hot I should help her figure out who killed her brother Um, like but by the time that comes back around I've like now, I'm not saying I forgot about it, but I was not thinking about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And right. this movie also could have just been the murder mystery movie the whole time, even though we know who did it. Like, it could have been, it could have been that movie, too. You're not wrong. Uh, you know what? Let's do it. Why not? But, I mean, like, like this, this film picked a lot to... This is a very busy film. And I think when you and I have talked about movies that try to do this much we have complained about them because it's fucking hard like it is very difficult to do this many things at once it's tough to have you know there be this you know uh mob mentality or uh versus justice uh, you know centered around union boss and and mafioso types around a murder combined with Marlon Brando and his boxing career combined with the, the Jesus stuff combined with the love story. Like it's a lot going on in this film that it really just manages to balance so fucking well. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I have the faith in Ilya Kazan, the director to have made any one of those individual plot lines, the entire like, think, think about Rocky, think about this movie versus Rocky because Rocky is like, take out the, the um, union boss shit. and the murder shit and and that's rocky i'm trying to make it as a fighter i got a girlfriend i'm trying to make it as a fighter i and i live i live in not great i live in kind of poverty yeah but then just add in the layer of rocky being fucking bullied by his peers for decades being called a bomb being you know put down for this, uh, that, the other right. thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely an aspect of the movie that I was appreciative appreciative to see from you know a film that came out so long ago, long, long before there was ever the discussion of you know men's mental health and, and things like that. This dives into the idea that hey, this kind of you know mental torment to some degree, but but just mental prodding consistently really does have a negative effect on the psyche of even, you know, big, tough guy men. Yeah, those, those, those classic big, tough guy men. Yeah, classic big, tough guy men. Classic big, tough guy men. Um, I'm trying to think about what I really have to, to kind of dig into on this, because the problem is I didn't take many notes. I didn't either, for either of these movies. Uh, I have some for Birdman. I, don't, I have far fewer for this film, only because I, th- I, I think you, I, well, I, I think you know where this movie's going when it starts, and that that's fine with this because the journey there is still really interesting. Like, you know, the I'd say the the main conflict in terms of plot is, you know, is is. Marlon Brando going to rat out on uh, on 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 Johnny Friendly, you know, because um, that you know, I mean that's like literally what the fucking movie's about. And with these types of movies, especially in like 1954, you know he's going to. Right. Him not doing it is way too dark for 1954. Um, and so, like, I, there's no. Re- I find it tough to fixate too much on like. The will he won't he pros cons of or 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 you know internal battling of the situation when you know what the eventuality is going to be, um, and plus I've seen it a bunch of times, so I just I just mm-hmm. I just didn't fucking feel like it. Um, I don't know. What do you let, 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 let's talk about Eva Marie Saint? What do you think about Eva Marie Saint in this movie? She's really pretty, but I think she does do a pretty fantastic job of. Being that, you know, partially stereotyped, you know, damsel and not damsel in distress, but that, you know, overly emotional, traumatized young woman trying to find revenge while also keeping her wits about her about what she can and cannot feasibly do to go about that and seeking out the responsible and proper means to do so in their community. You know, like you, you see sometimes where like they go out and it's like, oh, I need vengeance. I need to do this myself and like runs head on into whatever, you know, organization is behind it and causes more trouble and needs to be saved. Like those kind of stereotypes or, you know, being completely lost and being so frantically absent minded and overcome with emotion. Like they are like frozen almost from making a decision. And I think she reasonably goes to you know a man of both power moral and you know respect you know carl malden's pastor um and and i don't know i'm i don't know where i'm going to keep rambling on with this i'll just end it here no i i think i think you bring up really good points because i was going to say um she really feels like a woman straight out of a Tennessee Williams play. 
Which is very fitting because, again, the connection between Ilya Kazan and Tennessee Williams. Like, Eva Marie Saint has all of the fire and passion that you get out of a much worse character while also having points and facts and reason and um, some level of understanding and agency. And, but the, on the surface, you still see a lot of that hysterics like you, you would get out of, or, or a lot of that passion and a lot of that outward emotional expression that you would get out of, you know, like a Stella Kowalski or a Blanche Dubois. Um, and that you would see be only, only that surface level um, emotional um, expression in a worse movie, but also like is a, a, moral compass in a lot of ways and 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 doesn't just like fall into Brando's arms and expect him to do everything. She's willing to bring the fight herself and and do a lot and do some legwork here to the extent which she is allowed to in this film. She's not still like, you know, we're, we're not looking at a fully modernized film where she like gets her hands truly as dirty as I think a character like this would in a movie today, but she she's way more involved than I think you would get. Like like the women that are in, um, a bridge on the river Kwai, those Ugh. are those are those girls are there just to be fucking girls. Ugh. Those are there to be the girls that the men try to fuck. Like that's it. Those are the girls there for the men to fuck. Like, yeah, they, they do those fuck are straight up. Those are straight up objects. Yeah. And 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 that is not what Eva Marie Saint is in this film. No. She actually has stuff to do, and while she does bring the larger emotion to it, because you know, Brando, Carl Malden, Lee J. Cobb all show anger at different points and all show sadness at different points. There's not nearly the size of the of the emotional output that you get from them that you do get from Eva Marie Saint. Um, so having her be that that like meter in the film, I think really works very effectively. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you think about uh Carl Malden in this film? What do you think about our, our good, our good pastor here? Uh, I really liked him. I think this is our, my favorite Carl Malden appearance yet. I think he had an incredibly powerful performance and, and did both exceptionally better than almost was expected from Carl Malden, just because, I don't know if I've ever seen him have this kind of role actively before. Uh, again, I could be easily mistaken there. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's something where he kind of took over certain scenes and just kind of took over. And it was something I don't remember him ever showing this the previous times I've seen it. It's always been a Eva Marie Saint, Marlon Brando, Lee J. Cobb. Oh, and now I'm seeing how good Carl Malden is in this. Yeah, he he is he is so much quieter than than um, his counterparts in this film, which he always is. Like that's like mm -hmm. the Carl Malden special, um, but does so with such great subtlety that I think he really is. Oh, he's so fun because, like, I mean, we, the, I think we talked about this exact point when we talked about Patton with him as um oh, as uh, General Bradley versus um. George C. Uh -huh. Scott's Patton. Right? Didn't we have this exact, exact conversation? Oh, absolutely. 
and like there are different styles of leadership and, and what that meant for um you know their ability to be a part of all this but yes i i think especially the one scene where he is down you know in the ship itself giving that speech i think that's a, a pretty spectacular performance there that was his no, it's so his good. defining moment it's so and it's so good and this is just a good bit of casting because carl malden does such a great you know like we just said kind of quiet very down-to-earth thing um you know he was like in Patton. he's not a preachy guy in Patton. he's right and he 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 gets promoted more often than Patton um because he's like a better dude to work with but he's mm -hmm. not preachy about it and no. that's him here too which serves so well because a worse version of this movie has the preacher be very preachy. Oh man, stereotypes galore, really? I know, right? In Hollywood, never. Um, so like having Carl Malden be kind of like a very like, I don't know, middle America, down the road, straight talker, but with a, with a sensitivity about him kind of dude, be the voice of religion without it being just like, you know, fist down throat, here's some God for you. Um, really worked so goddamn well. Um, so let's, uh, I guess, you know, we've, we've been talking about it for a while, which is very easy to do for this movie. I guess let's kind of just jump to the end to, to uh, get that in before we kind of wrap things up. Uh, so at the end of the movie, you know, uh, Mar Marlon Brando, he, he, he testifies against, uh, <laughs> against friendly, you know, he, or he gives, uh, I don't know if it's a testimony or if it's just like a, um, um, what do they call those things where you just kind of tell the cops? Deposition. Story? Deposition. Do you know which one it actually was? Um, was it a testimony or was it a deposition? When, when he was in the courtroom? Yeah. That would be a uh, testimony. Was, uh, yeah, right, right. That's a, right, 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 right. Deposition bad. is a written, uh, a legally binding under oath written account of what happened before you go to court. Okay, okay. So he probably did that too, but that's that's not really featured in the film. Uh, no. so I'm wrong. Um, so anyway, so, you know, Marlon Brando gives his testimony. Uh, <laughs> he, he, and then goes back to work. He, he tries to go back down to the dock to, to get his job, which is an interesting point in of itself, because I think it's there to show that, you know, we've seen throughout the film, Marlon Brando has a complex relationship with these people, these, these mobsters par parading as union men but isn't afraid of them and that right. he really has a strong internalized sense of justice and that is what he's presenting here and so um he goes back i think he's going back to the to work the next day not out of pride per se but as a fulfillment of his own sense of right and wrong uh, how did you read that uh yeah i mean i could i definitely would agree with that statement where he is a he is almost torn between the family that he does know with his brother who is you know heavily involved and is a key member of that organization and just kind of you know listening to what others have to say and then finding his own voice his own passion his own desires and being his own moral compass. And, you know, I know there's one point where he talks about directly, you know, doing what 
uh, Evie wants him to do, doing what the pastor wants him to do. And at no point did he mention that he was doing what he wants to do, which I think was something that he actively didn't mention because he doesn't think of it, but is inevitably exactly what he ends up doing because he does do what is best for him in his own mind. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it it absolutely does. Sorry, I was just trying to think of a good segue into the next talking point, but I really didn't have one, so here we go. Uh, (laughs) So, so, when he shows up for work, like, you know, they're, they're passing out the tokens and everybody gets to work that day, except Marlon Brando, that guy gets fucked. And so he ends up, you know, shouting out friendly and, and, you know, talking some shit. And that ends up becoming a big fight where, you know, Brando's fucking up Lee J Cobb, something real good. And Marlon Brando, the boxer, the younger man, big dude. Is giving him the business, right? Yeah, looking like he, looking like he's gonna be looking like he's gonna. I forgot we we immediately jumped to the final scene. I never mind. Um, that's all right. Did you have something to say before that? No, I just we were talking about you know like I jumped into something just earlier on and I, I forgot we were talking specifically about the final scene. So oh, all good. Jump in and apologize. I'm so sorry. <laughs> all good, buddy. Um. So it looks like uh, Marlon Brando is going to end up taking the fight. I don't know what that would really do for him in the long run, but it looks good in the moment. Unfortunately for him, uh, the rest of Friendly's gang all get together on him and beat him to a fucking pulp. That good 1950s black and white blood where it just looks fucking black on his face like tar. Um, And... you know, everyone kind of scatters, and 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 you, you know the 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 mood of the doc shifts very dramatically towards sympathy towards um, Marlon Brando, and and you know what he ends up doing, and everyone everyone decides to show show a, a little bit of support for him by refusing their work unless um, unless Brando gets to join in as well, and uh, <laughs> and then they they push Lee J Cobb into the river, right? Pop, yeah, Pop pushes him in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you get a very, a very satisfying, dramatic final moment of Marlon Brando uh, getting up after the the beating, like like fucking bloody as shit, um, and just kind of like hobbling over towards the, uh, um, towards the garage as they close the doors. Um, I'm not sure what to make of the ending, other than just. You know, I survived. You know, you you beat me down, and, and you know, I defied the odds, or I survived your abuses, and here I am on its face. This is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. That's really all I got out of it. Um, it's a great moment, not to, to diminish it, but that's like I don't see anything else there. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like it is the satisfying underdog finally, you know, comes out victorious. Finally, is you know able to come back and and make a name for himself and you know he is no longer the bum that he thinks he is and everyone has told him he was you know he he's now somebody you know he he has achieved his his goals his wishes uh, what he wants so that's right. what i get for 
yeah, you're right. I, I missed the uh, the the greater arc there, but yeah, yeah, you're spot on with it. Um, I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. Love that line. It's a great fucking line. Somewhere uh, on the AFI's top 100 list, somewhere for I'm, movie yeah, quotes. Somewhere. Uh, it's like at, uh, anything else to say, Anna, before we do uh, final ratings and reviews? Um, I wish fit, passionate Marlon Brando could have stayed around a little while longer. Uh, well, you know, the more the merrier. The more Marlon Brando that is, as in yeah, the more pounds, the more pounds of Marlon Brando there. Because he fat, he got he, he, fat. he got real fat, real yeah, real fat, real fat. Uh, one of my fat. Fa- that's real that's fat. one of my favorite apocalypse now uh, factoids is he was so fat they had to physically change the ending of the movie to frame him around his fatness. Yeah, my one of my favorite um, mutiny on the bounty factoids is that they kept having to remake his pants because he was getting so fat so fast he kept growing out of them (laughs) which is truly (laughs) astonishing and likely the signs of a far more serious issue yeah um but my goodness (laughs) you he was just sitting back getting blown by richard pryor all day i'll get you fat real quick um anyway (laughs) i i hope i hope someday there's more information on that and some definitive proof. Um, I, 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 I'm convinced it's real, but what does that say? Uh, all right. So final raising reviews. I don't really know what to say. This is a great fucking movie. We've done nothing but jerk it off the entire time. It's a classic. It's an absolute classic. It's Marlon Brando at his fucking peak. It's so goddamn good. At Before his Marlo Brandiest. His, yes, his, 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 his Marlon Brandoiest. Um, pre Godfather, you know, so there's, there's not that, you don't see the age in his face and automatically associate him with the Godfather because you know mm-hmm. some of those, those post Godfather roles. You see the lines and they're the same lines that uh, Don Corleone had, and you immediately kind of put that Godfather um, feel on it. And so you don't get any of that. It, it is really like a defining movie had in the fifties. Um, it's a fucking classic. It's it's a five out of five for me. Yeah, that's all I got. I'm gonna give this one a. F- Four and a half, because while I I really did appreciate you know the acting, the performances, and everything involved, the story really for me just kind of left a, a fair chunk to be desired. You know, like it was something where I really enjoyed it, but there is that like eh, like how how strong of a story was this really, and I just. I don't love it. It's an X factor decision for me. So four and a half. All right. Um, then I guess let's jump on over to our second film of the day. Talking about 2014's Birdman. Um, oh, Birdman. Oh, I watched Batman. Oh, I feel dumb. Yeah, you've been saving that joke all day. No, I just thought of it. That's why it's so fucking bad. <laughs> I love you. Um, <laughs> it was uh, written by Alejandro G. Inyaratu. It was written by Alejandro G. Inyaratu, Nicolas Giac- Giacobone, Alexander Danilaris, <laughs> Armando Bo, 
uh, and based on uh, uh, and extra material based on a play by Raymond Carver, which is a big part of this film. And if you did not know that, they mm. say it many times. Yes. Um, it stars Michael Keaton, Zach Galifianakis, and Edward Norton. Um, some other big names in this film. We have Naomi Watts um, and Emma Stone as well, largely featured in this. Um, it had an estimated budget of $18 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $103 million. That is a lot of money. That certainly makes this a good ROI. Um, it's ta- the movie's tagline is, um, I just had it. Where'd it go? Oh, maybe it doesn't have one. Uh, oh, it has to have one. I don't, I, I don't see one. There's no way this is a, a modern, you know, Oscar bait film that doesn't have a tagline. I'm telling you, man, I do not see one. And I am calling you a liar. Well, I'm definitely not lying. I'm, it might be out of incompetence, but I'm not lying. Man, the Birdman. I just Googled The Birdman instead of Birdman. What are you, 97? Yes. What about The Birdman? <laughs> Honey, do you want a The Nintendo for Christmas? I would like every Nintendo, please. Um, all right, so there's no tagline. Uh, it won four. Oscars on the back of um, nine nominations. It won for Best Motion Picture of the Year for Alejandro G. and Yaratu, John Lesher, and James W. Scotch Duple? Scotch Dupoli? No fucking clue. Uh, it won for Best Achievement in Directing. I, I, do, I do not know what I just said. Um, best no. Achievement in Directing for Alejandro G. and Yaratu. And best writing original screenplay for Alejandro G. and Yaratu, Nicolas Giacobone, Alexander Dinalaris, and Armando Bo, as well as best achievement in cinematography for Emmanuel Lubezki. Um, those are the Oscars it won. It was also nominated for best performance by an actor in a leading role for Michael Keaton, best actor in a performance, best actor in a supporting role by for Edward Norton, best performance by an actress in a supporting role for. Emma Stone, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for John Taylor, Frank A. Montano, Thomas Varga, uh, and Best Achievement in Sound Editing for Aaron Glasscock and Martin, Martin Hernandez. Um, it is about... So guy's last name really Glasscock. Yes, sir. Uh, it is about a washed-up superhero actor who attempts to revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production Corwin, this was your film. Give me thoughts. Yes. So like stated earlier, this was a film that I picked because of how renowned it was and also how much I didn't like it when it first came out. I I saw this movie. I heard all of the hubbub and all of the um, discussion surrounding it and basically heard all about how great of a film it was supposed to be figured hey i should at least give this a watch i did and i didn't like it i really just did not get why people enjoyed it i did not get what made it so special or even what made it an enjoyable movie to watch so being the you know man of science i want to be i said hey let's give this another shot did and uh boy did i really like this movie this was incredible. What incredible performances all around. 
Michael Keaton, even Naomi Watts, Emma Stone, Edward Norton. Edward Norton being his Edward Nortoniest. I love that you're adopting this. Um, I I just really enjoyed it. The storyline I thought was going to be a major issue. It was fantastic. It was both riveting and attention holding and just all around something that was interesting to rediscover because I had kind of forgotten all of the major plot points other than this guy used to be a, a essentially Batman character. Um, I really did enjoy how despite having all of these like uh, what's the what's the term for it? Like not dream sequences but um, he's like imagining all these things happening uh, uh, right. regardless. Um, it still kept it very much in reality by, you know, joking on the fact that Michael Keaton was a really bad Batman. <laughs> and, you know, all of these things that were happening in the year this essentially was supposed to take place in 2014 was, you know, kept in reality and still part of all that. And I, I really enjoyed this through and through. The uh, only complaint I have, which I'll get out of the way now while I'm on the topic of being so nice to it, it was a little pretentious and up its own ass at times. And I thought that was going to be a bigger issue up until it got to the point where it's like, oh, like that is clearly the point and clearly a comment it's trying to make. I just need to accept that for what it is. And I did. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I think it's tough to make this movie without it being pretentious because it's a, it, it it's artistically ambitious in the whole like single shot thing. We just talked about 1917 last week with it. That is an mm-hmm. ambition. It's about the theater. It's actors acting about being actors who act like it is. Well, like, like if, if we're letting Hollywood make movies about theater, it's going to be up its own ass because it literally is like, and you, and you're right. Like that just is what it is. Um. Yeah, I I love this movie. I I I saw it when it came out. I was a fan of it when it came out. I was worried I would I would actually like it less while watching it again the other day, and I liked it the exact same amount. <laughs> it 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 is so remarkably well cast, and I'm, oh, I'm looking yeah. forward to talking about that because being well cast isn't just getting like the best people on paper that you can get. It's about getting people who really fill the spot that they are occupying on the screen in, in a very specific way. And not only did these people do that so well, these people's actual real life backstories fit their characters, actual Mm -hmm. real life backstories so fucking well. And obviously to an extent, it has to have been planned and written that way because it's too perfect. Um, But it's just because it was might've been written that way. doesn't mean it makes it any less, amazing to watch on screen because it really really fits so fucking well um and this is a film that is carried by its acting there is there there is acting happening in every scene like um i finish your thought that i'll i have one to go into oh no i really don't have much I, i i'm excited to talk about this i love this movie what was your point I was truly taken aback to an extent with just how much acting there was at all times. Uh, I mean, the way it's shot there, it's so close 
and personal at such you know intense moments uh it's incredible how in depth and how intricate every one of these actors needed to be nearly at all times when they were on screen and just having to act their fucking asses off the whole time just it was non-stop and it was crazy to see i i know i i, I mean seriously like every fucking second of this goddamn movie um so i guess yeah let, let's uh let's start getting into it so this movie is about michael keaton playing a more fucked up version of michael keaton uh, so backstory of michael keaton that we know of right <laughs> at least what we're privy to uh, a little background on michael keaton michael keaton was as corwin said earlier uh one of the guys who played batman when um movies of batman started becoming like really big in the like late 80s early 90s he was one of the original batmen uh <laughs> Um, he, 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 he was the Batman of the 1989 version. And I don't remember. Yes, there was a sequel in 1992. I don't Batman think there was Forever. a third. No, Batman Returns. Batman Forever was, was that... um, George mm-hmm. Clooney. Yeah. 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 That was the nipple costume. That one is hard. That one. That's an awful I'm glad movie. they didn't have a George Clooney type guy. And like, that's the version of Batman they were, you know, commenting on because. That that Batman needs to be forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Batman Forever needs to forget. Uh, but so he plays. He, he you know he's playing this guy who was a really famous comic book superhero back in the nineties. Who's you know kind of that guy who played a comic book superhero back in the nineties. Um, which I think most people would have thought of. Um, um, fucking stop singing! Sorry. God damn it. Um, Michael Keaton, that's who I think how a lot of people would have thought of Michael Keaton pre-2014. Since then, he's had a career resurgence, and he's been in uh, Spotlight, and Trial of the Chicago 7, and um, he was, uh, well, th- I'm saying post-2014, <laughs> post-Birdman. Um, he was in Spider-Man Homecoming, he was in The Founder, he's all oh, over the place now. Um, but I think a lot of people would have remembered Michael Keaton as either the Beetlejuice guy uh, or um, Batman. And he is clearly, the movie starts with him very obviously not in a good place. We, we start the movie outside of reality with Michael Keaton levitating in his, um, his dressing room. Right away setting the stage that we're not, we're not you know, we're not entirely based in, 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 in the realm of uh, physics and, 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 and mental soundness. And it moves throughout, you know, him trying to stage a play in an attempt to revive his career and um, witnessing his psychological mental breakdown as he goes through this attempt. And that's the movie. That's really it. And boy, do they do a great job of it. <laughs> y- yeah. Um, because... Everyone has something on the line. And I think that's what makes this film really interesting. You know, Michael Keaton's is obvious. It's his career. Um, Naomi Watts, I don't really know what her stakes are in this, but, you know, she's outside of being an actress. Edward Norton, like, he he has this ever-strained um, um, reputation that is 
only getting worse as he goes through this, which again is a very Edward Norton plot line because he is notorious for being an asshole. Right. I, um, nobody's, nobody's ever questioned Edward Norton's acting ability. It's always been, do we want to put up with Edward Norton making this film? Right. And, and a subtle note that I've have only gotten more appreciation of as time has gone on. I listened to an interview with Edward Norton pretty recently um, where he was talking about his bad reputation. And he said, uh, and the interview asked him like, you know, is it, is it true that you would rewrite scripts while the movies were being made? And Edward Norton was like, ah. and basically his point was apparently his parents were both writers mm-hmm. and he grew up with that kind of environment and under and having very strong and deeply held opinions on story structure and dialogue and all these types of things. And so while he never meant to be difficult, he would often give his opinion. The mm. problem is though, that is being difficult, whether you attend on it or not. And when... so the fact that you see Edward Norton trying to rewrite the play <laughs> the day he gets brought on, before he even technically gets brought on, really emphasizes how specific this role is to Edward Norton, since that's his main thing. Right. I definitely, definitely enjoyed watching him come in and just be someone who, you know, doesn't necessarily follow Hollywood gossip terribly closely. But the few things I know of the personal or, you know, behind the curtain side of Edward Norton just being a major hilarious plot point. Truly. His character just in general, like even if it is meant to be Edward Norton or, or you know, uh, uh, just composite of a bunch of different actors is fucking hilarious. And the problem is, is that it, 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 it is Ed, Edward Norton. <laughs> like, you know, Edward Norton can pretend it's not Edward Norton. Alejandro Iñárritu can pretend it's not Edward Norton. It's Edward Norton. <laughs> we all know <laughs> like, it's Edward Norton, yeah. Everyone knows. Uh, God, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I actually want to take a, a huge deviation real quick from where I was kind of going to, to talk about an early point. Um, the, the thing that brings Edward Norton to the film is that the actor that was playing the part Edward Norton eventually takes over um, gets hit on the head by a falling uh, spotlight. And 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 Michael funny. Keaton, like Zach Galifianakis is, is like, you know, and Michael Keaton are talking about it. And the first thing Michael Keaton says to Zach Galifianakis after he steps off the stage is that wasn't an accident. Mm-hmm. And then Zach Galifianakis, who doesn't give a shit about anything other than selling tickets this entire movie, um, which is perfect. It's exactly what he should have been. Um, brushes it off because he doesn't care because it's not about selling tickets. And, you know, it, when you first watch this movie for the first time, you're not going to think anything of that. Because that line comes like, seriously, like five minutes into the movie. You have not gone off the rails yet. You do not know where this movie is going yet. So it doesn't mean anything other than, you know, I, my first initial reading of that line is, oh, that this man believes in fate. He thinks that was fated to happen. It wasn't an accident because it was deus ex machina. I'm not convinced that's what that line is on the second viewing. I think mm-hmm. Michael Keaton did that to him. I think Michael Keaton yeah. is saying in there, for real, I did this. I, uh, 
I will be honest. I think it's just me being smarter than you or being more in tune with uh, film as a language than you. But I took that immediately for what it was because we do open the film with a man fucking levitating in his dressing room. Uh, which, having gone into this movie only knowing it's a good movie the first time I saw it, and that was really it. It was a commentary on on film in general, and that's what you should be expecting. I didn't know what to expect, so that just coming out of nowhere, essentially, and just being like, oh, this is a man levitating. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe that was enough to kind of be like, all right, there's something clearly different here, so... All around, this is just a, a roundabout way of me saying I'm smarter than you, just in every feasible way. Uh, and uh, you got me. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't really me. have anything to add. I just wanted to point that out. It's I so got rare. Got yeah. <laughs> um, I I think I also am one who tends to to lean towards the 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 religiosity of the moment. I'm I'm constantly looking for the. I'm making it a word. I'm I'm sure. constantly looking for for where they're trying to tie God into this because I, I I am fascinated with religion brought into movies and the any but anyway yeah so Corwin is smarter than me he wins um, podcast <laughs> over uh, anyway I wanted a quick diversion into that uh, I would like to talk about another kind of I'm not sure if it's subtle or not really but another uh, a different you. point uh, yeah right <laughs> something that you thought was fucking obvious. Um, <laughs> the passage of time in this film is incredibly uncertain. Hmm. I never know how, where in the day we are in this film. And part of that's because oh. there's not a lot of daylight in the theater. Um, so it's tough to get a good, a good read on where in the day we are, how long time has gone by for. But I think that's also really a brilliant point to, to, add in for the audience because i think part of that is if you can't ground yourself in time you're going to have a hard time grounding yourself in reality this is a man who is not grounded in reality and this movie's not really grounded in time like corwin how how much time passes from the beginning of this movie to the end of this movie or at least from the beginning of this movie to, to the to the shooting i would think it's like a full 48 hours I have no so, fucking clue. Again, I have no definitive answer. I would just think it's the start of day one leading into the night of previews and then the next night being uh, when we actually have the uh, the opening night. But again, I can't say for certain. I have no fucking idea. I, I can't imagine previews would be one night before... Uh, the opening of a major play production. I have, <laughs> yes, I'm saying I have no fucking clue, and I think that's meant to fit in with this whole uh, inability to to tie yourself in to to ground yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I think I think that the the jazz drumming. Is is there for the same purpose? Um, I I I really spent a lot of time contemplating the the jazz drumming. This this viewing, Who's got the jazz? huh? Who's got the jazz? We got the jazz, Corwin. 
We got the jazz. <laughs> Who's got the jazz? We got the jazz. Fucking man, Montreux. all that jazz. Um, microphone check one two. What is this? Uh, um, anyway. <laughs> got a um, I know. God damn it. R.I.P. Five. So, because I I I think. I'm not convinced at any point as to what the jazz drumming symbolizes. I think on its surface is there to be relatively arrhythmic and to be confusing. And that is Mm -hmm. also just another point to kind of add in to the, um, you know, kind of sporadic nature of the film, kind of like off kilter sentiment that it's going for. Um, I don't know if there's anything more greatly symbolic about jazz specifically outside of that sense of, you know, I guess uh, uh, there's a word I'm looking for. Um, frenetic, maybe I don't know, but I mm. I don't know if there's if there's a greater reason for for why jazz in particular, or if it's just the the tone it's setting. But I definitely sat with that a lot too. Do you have any impression of what the what the jazz drumming was there for? No, other than just you know setting the tone for the rest of the film. You know, it's one of those things where. I wasn't necessarily focused on the sound and the music. I usually, you know, am not like, you know, if you've listened, it's, it's more technical and and narrative focused rather than, than sound and and sound production, music, stuff like that. Uh, So I can't say I gave it any active thought while watching. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you a question then Corwin. Sure. Why is this movie one shot? Um, do you want a creative answer or I guess that's the only way to answer because there is no technical reason to do it other than in my mind, creating a more interpersonal connection and and more interpersonal, um, experience, you know, being able to see deeper into what's going on with each of these characters throughout this essentially mind altering, you know, psychedelic almost not psychedelic but you know psycho analytic film experience but uh, i don't know so i i i think part of it is is you know like what you were just saying you know it's to add to this nature of like everything's constant and that is going to lead to as the viewer a little bit of an overwhelming sense is things it there are no pauses there are no stops we are in this bitch um Mm -hmm. i think another another part of it is the raymond carver part of it um because so i i I, because i wanted to to learn a little bit more about raymond carver um because you know there's got to be a reason why they picked this motherfucker's play, you know? Like, they're right. not just picking a random fucking writer. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not familiar enough with his, with his actual work to, like, really give a good idea of where the carveriness of, of the, the movie lies. But one of the things I did in my, in my brief research was find that um, one, of, one of Carver's styles was or a, a, a hallmark of his style was that he was trying to he always wanted his writings to be short and intense right he wanted right. Uh, he, he was most notably he, it, they're focusing on on a play here but he was most notably a, a short storyist or whatever you would call that 
Um, and he, he focused in on intensity. And I think the idea behind the one shot thing is to be representative of brevity, even though this movie is over two hours long. Uh, right? Uh, yeah, no, it's two hours. I have it as one fifty nine, but who huh. knows? Well, my my movie file was over two hours long. Yeah, I don't know if that counts. Like all the credits and Credit, shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think that that one shot is meant to represent the brevity, and then the intensity is actually contained within you know the film itself. I think that's where that's supposed to be. So I think that plays into it too. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm glad that made sense. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that's, it's a, it's something that is almost a a creative opinion rather than you know physical technical realization. Um, you know, there's definitely scenes that feel longer than they would with multiple. Like you cut a lot of times in a in a single shot or a single scene and um it it can really fasten the pace and there are definitely scenes in this that are not um as in they just are they're really drawn out and they are are meant to feel long and almost uncomfortable and, and show that passage of time. But there are definitely significant sections of this that are quick paced, you know, walk and talks. If this was a, a Sorkin production or things like that, that are extended and feel sh- fast paced, feel almost, you know, quick cut, short, intermediate segments of narr- narration or, or what have you and that comes back to that that long single continuous shot right i man i need to learn some better lingo so i don't have to have these rambling incoherent responses <laughs> they, they are far less incoherent than you think they are right I, but in my head like trying to get it out is so incoherent at the time like while it's being said oof, it's a nightmare but what have you I can only imagine it's a nightmare being up there for uh, uh, a, a large quantity of reasons, but you know we'll leave that to the side. Uh, yeah. Oops. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Riggin uh, or Michael Keaton, you know, pick whichever name. I, I usually go with actors' names because I'm very lazy and terrible with names. Um, he he is really just going about his mental decline while trying to put on this play. And the rest of it is is in the rest of the film is interspersed with his encounters and the subplots of the people whom are also involved in the making of this. Um, what do you think of uh, Emma Stone's character, the daughter, Sam? I really enjoyed it. It it was something where it's a role that Emma Stone definitely is is a, someone who fits it nearly perfectly i don't know if she has a personal history with like drug abuse like her character does in the film um i mean a lot of the topics seem to fit that or you know a lot of the the personal whatever you know with these characters seems to fit that but um she definitely plays it well and boy does she have some intense scenes and and really shows off the the personal nature of this throughout and I, I think she does a really good job 
Because I, I, one of the the points in this film that I really like that they focus on is the attempted at attempt at making a distinction between the self indulgent nature of what's happening on screen, you know, the self indulgent nature of actors in general and theater and mm-hmm. plays versus the commitment it takes to do this and how much blood, sweat, and tears you put into actually doing it. You know, so right. that's a thing that we often see with, with Riggin Thompson, Michael Keaton. As the film goes on, you know, like, people, he, he's an asshole because this is all he's focused on, but he's also all so focused on it because it's, like, all he has. And yeah. Emma Thompson's character in this is, like, bringing that to life. Because here she is, a person who, as his daughter, really the only thing she needs from him is attention and care. And he is like incapable of doing it and has been his whole life, not just right now because of his profession, because he is an indulgent man and his indulgency is himself. And while you can brush some of it to the side, his, his blase nature towards her because of how, frantic he is during this film because he's trying to put on the play and that's understandable it looks like fucking chaos at the same time it's very clear from the emma thompson character being who she is that this is who he has always been what we're seeing on screen is not new this is rick and thompson and emma stone is probably an alcoholic because she was either not loved enough by rick and thompson when she was a kid or because um she was trying to get his attention as a kid because she she wasn't getting any from him and she was lashing out or you know I'm not I'm no fucking psychologist psychiatrist whatever I'm not sure any of that shit's right but I that's how I'm reading it from what she's giving you know what I mean right and why else, why else try to fuck Edward Norton <laughs> well I mean he's Edward Norton. Granted, as a man, that doesn't really mean much to me, but I'm sure to many women, the fame and whateverness of Edward Norton leads to a, a quality fuck, if you will. Um, hi, Mom. Hope you're listening. Um, I want to slam Edward Norton's car. I want to fuck that tight-ass booty so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, there are senses you say that you're happy that you said them, but looking back, it's like, I could have... I could have picked those words better. I don't need to be confronted on this later. <laughs> yep. Nope. Don't need to have a conversation about that statement. Uh, Christmas is going to be tough this year. Oh, man. I don't even remember where I was going. Um, Emma Emma Thompson being... Emma Thompson? Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Sorry. Emma Stone uh, being like a physical manifestation of um, Michael Keaton's self-indulgency. Yeah. I mean, there are those... Uh, topics or that conversation that's had where um i think it would be between emma stone and edward norton um about how she was basically you know left alone as a kid like he he was an absentee father because of what i assumed to be his movie career um and then you know all of what he was trying to do to to earn back her her love and affection was you know telling her how special she was this that 
Um, so that definitely could be a part of that manifestation. Um, hard to say. Fair enough. Um, trying to think about what other, uh, Zach Galifianakis, I love in this movie. I think he's great in this movie. I'm not yeah. sure there's anything to say about him in this movie. It's one of those performances where it's like, wow, this isn't the guy, Zach Galifianakis that fits that Zach Galifianakis stereotype. It's just like, he happens to be just such a, he is so stressed out and just so torn to like six different places all at once. And just the only one really taking this all seriously for what it is being a, a business venture that it's fucking hilarious. Oh my God. I love it. I know. He's so fucking good. Um, like when, when he gets it, when uh, Edward Norton and Michael Keaton get into like a, a physical altercation, he's like, get this guy out of here. And he's just like, no, we cannot afford to fire a A-list celebrity actor at this point. I don't give a shit that you literally just fought on stage. He's here. He's not leaving. Get the fuck over it. And just wildly frantic the entire time. Yeah, he's like the only bit of reality we have here. Um, what do you think of the scene at which, in which um, uh, Michael Keaton and the... Um, theater reviewer get into it a little bit at the bar um i guess i thought of that as mostly how desperate michael keaton is you know similar to oh what did i just watch that was uh succession i don't know if you've ever seen it but basically anytime shit hits the fan or shit goes bad not the way that was planned or intended it's it's this wildly it's this major, major thing that just cannot be overlooked or, or what have you. Like, they lose all control over it. And I think that's similar to what's going on here, where he cannot afford to have a bad review, and he knows that this is going to be a reviewer that is going to fuck with him, and he is just losing his shit at her over it. But I'm sure you have a very thought-out, intuitive, symbolic response to this. Well, I, I I think this is this is a, a big moment for the point that we talked about a bit earlier, which is, you know, how much of what's happening is self-indulgency versus, um, you know, like a manifestation of something I truly believe in or, or uh, some level of my inner self or whatever, you know, um, because, you know, we find out that the reason the Riggin Thompson character picked uh Raymond Carver is that he met Carver at a show that he did, and that's what convinced him to be an actor. So, in on 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 its surface, you know, this reviewer is looking at at this guy, and she's seeing an uh, a washed up uh, box office success actor who is trying to um, pretend like he is someone that has a deeper um, artistic root than that. And has done so by picking someone of the of the ilk of Raymond Carver, and is and is faking it. And I think she said something to the effect of like taking up space at a theater that could otherwise be used for real art or some shit like that. Right. And, like I I dislike you f- because of what you represent, not right anything to do with what's going on in the theater. Right. The symbolic nature of it all, and and that is what she is seeing: the self indulgency, and what. Michael Keaton is saying is the, um, you know, the 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 
inner meaning of it all. You know, I picked Carver because he needs something to me. I picked this play because I truly feel as though I am an actor. I am putting myself into this. I'm putting it all on the line in this. I'm sacrificing my livelihood for, for or my my everything I have for this, you know? And there's merits to both, which is what I think makes that a good scene. They, they I think the film paints the reviewer a little bit too evil because to be honest she has a very good point and i don't think she's wrong i understand that we get more of the michael keaton side of the argument since this movie is about his character she is also right in that entire thing and while she says it abrasively it didn't make it wrong but see it's one thing to be right in the message she's saying. It's another thing to still be giving him a bad review regardless of seeing the play and seeing anything more to it other than just something that is produced by Michael Keaton. You know? Uh, no, I and I, and I do, because you're... And this is why I find this to be such a, such a great scene because there's so much going on in it in terms of what it represents. Because I don't think you're wrong. There is there is no true justice in this. But if I could argue on behalf of this reviewer, I would say she is trying to discourage this behavior from continuing where the theater, which again, this film is up its own ass, so I am going to be up my own ass defending it and or defending, taking the defense of this woman's side. Um, sure. The theater is a place for art because it is not affected by the same types of pockets that big budget blockbuster films are, and that she doesn't want to see it become that, where washed up or former or even at some point down the road maybe recent, you know, big name Marvel DC superheroes just go to Broadway and turn out direct and and get big showings because they're a famous person on Broadway. Um, and so she's trying to nip it in the bud by shitting on <laughs> Michael Keaton and making this look like a less attractive al- alternative or a less attractive route for future people thinking about doing the same thing, showing that it is harder than they might think it is, and to not take up a theater that could be devoted towards doing real art. And that's still not just because, like you said, she didn't see the play. She has a preconceived notion. She is prejudiced against Michael Keaton for who he is rather than what he's going to put on stage. And she ultimately ends up changing her mind when she sees what happens. But I Wait, do what? understand where she's coming from. She changes her uh, review? Yeah, the review they read at the end. That's her review. Oh, I never fucking put that together. Yeah. Damn. Okay. So I, I, I find it really really interesting because I, th- I think outside of the B plot, that is the pulse of the B plot. That one scene. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess let's, uh, let's talk about the A plot so we can get to the ending. Cause I know the ending was a huge talking point when this movie came out. Um, and obviously we're going to talk about it here too. We love our good. We love endings. Um, so, as the film goes on, the Michael Keaton levitating in his dressing room becomes the least weird thing Michael Keaton does. Um, 
<laughs> he uses his telepathic powers to throw shit around in his dressing room when he's mad. Um, he flies around the streets of New York City. Um, kind of. Well, he is shown flying around the streets of New York City. He opens and closes doors with his mind. He 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 moves a, a cigarette case with his with his mind. He, he does a whole bunch of telepathic shit. Um, and when we reach the, and again, I'm not sure if it was opening night or if it was the final preview, um, where Michael Keaton goes on stage after having been ridiculed by Edward G. Norton for using a very very fake gun, gets a more realistic looking gun. Um, actually, it's a real gun. Where he got it, no fucking clue. When he got it, no fucking clue. Again, passage of time in this movie, very uncertain. Um, brings that up on stage, and during the suicide scene in the play, actually shoots himself in the head. A moment of uncertainty, he ends up in the hospital, he shot himself in the nose, and blew his nose off. Um, so, We'll get to what happens after that, but how do you feel about that mental decline that we see leading up to that faux suicide point? So it's definitely something that is I appreciate. Um, something that I only noticed for the first time in this watch through is the first time that we see him stand on the edge of the roof jump off, start to fly through the city. Um, afterwards, we kind of see that, you know, a... How do I want to put this? How do I word this correctly? Um, it's intercut, basically, so that there is a taxi cab that appears once he leaves the scene. So he's not directly being shown getting out of the cab because he's shown flying. But as soon as they have the chance, they show that, oh, in this instance, he took a cab here. He didn't fly here after being pulled off a roof and jumping back off. In my mind, it was, oh, he got pulled off the roof and then took a cab back to the theater or the hotel, wherever he was. And obviously, there's a lot more instances that are shown that aren't given that kind of... I don't want to say closure, but added layer to it. Um, but I know in that instance, it does add cast that doubt on the rest of the instances themselves because of the secondary image shown. Yeah, and then there, there's a few points in that. Like when he's trashing the the, the room with his mind and then Zach Alphanakis comes in and Michael Heaton's just throwing shit around. That's meant to be another point like that where, you know, it's like, you thought he was doing this one thing, but the second someone else is witnessing it, it's he's not, you know. Um, right. It's like it's like well, it's like the viewpoint changed, you know. Like we were watching Michael Keaton, but also POV of Michael Keaton, and now Zach Galifianakis comes in, and now we're looking at Michael Keaton, but POV is more Zach Galifianakis. Right, and again, like that easily could be a a mind over matter type deal where the Birdman voice that speaks to him in his head could very much be just the voice, but the telekinetic powers, we don't know if that's just something in his head or if he actually is um, 
you know, having these kind of powers and just happen. Regardless, there's there's doubt to be had. And I, I love that the movie chooses to introduce a physical Birdman uh, instead of just the voice, like, a little bit later on, rather than starting off with that. To, right. to symbolize how, like, that part of his brain is slowly taking more and more control or becoming more and more real to him, you know? It goes mm-hmm. from just being a voice to being the whole guy floating over top of him. And it's funny, I don't remember the physical manifestation of Birdman the first time I watched it. Granted, that was probably 2015, 2014, 2015, but still, I don't really remember that being a uh, a a point. I I um I forgot about it until like right before it started happening, and I was like, "All right, we're gonna watch this bird dude take a shit later." <laughs> Definitely <laughs> forgot about that part. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always a fun. That's always a treat. Yeah. Um, that's what you bring your kids to the theater for. Naturally. Yeah, I I I think the the decline of the show is really well paced because it's not too much at the beginning. Like it's a very clear, like he's stressed out and like that, Hey, that, that levitating thing was super weird, but, um, it, so it, it you know, it, it lets you know kind of where that's going to go in the beginning. And then there's a really good job of not becoming cartoonishly. So too early on, um, and really giving it an opportunity to to stack up and layer and and really like flesh out the lunacy before we get to that suicide scene and then get to the end. So uh, I guess let's get into the ending. So he he's he's laying in his hospital bed and you know Zach Gal his ex wife comes in and you know she was in the movie and now she's talking to him and Zach Galifianakis comes in and he's like these reviews are fantastic. Um, and, you know, reads his reviews and then shoes the media away. And Emma Stone shows up and she tells him he's trending on Twitter, um, which was hilarious because she's like, you got like 13,000 views. And it's like, today, that's fucking nothing. <laughs> uh, 80,000. 80,000. 80,000 follows in a day. Right, 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 right. Um, Justin, yeah. you even watched the movie? Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> um and she was like, all right, I'm going to leave for some reason. I for- Josh currently forgets, um, but I'll be back in a second. And Michael Keaton's like, all right. So he goes to the bathroom, and we have been told that his nose got blown off and that he'll get a new nose, as Zach Galifianakis shouts. And he takes the bandages oh. off his face, and his nose is there. So that's confusing. And uh, Well, what I thought from that, just to butt in again, was I thought they gave him a new nose. And he could get a new new nose if he didn't like the one that they had given him. So I didn't I didn't pick up on that as being part of the hallucination because it is a very different nose. Well, it's swollen. I think, or at least there's a lot of swelling in the face because of the gunshot wound. But I mean, I I'm pretty sure his wife said he has no nose. Um I thought it was hat. Regardless, it it's it's we'll, him. Ha- we'll revisit this talking point in like a, in like just a mm-hmm. minute. Let me okay. <laughs> let's finish yeah. out the description of the end. Um, looks at himself in the mirror, goes over to the window, sees birds flying, gets up onto the windowsill, opens the window, and then leaps out. Camera pans back to the the hospital room door, 
Emma Stone comes in, is confused her father's not in his hospital bed, is confused her father's not in the bathroom, goes to look out the window, looks down, doesn't see him, I guess, looks up, and has a big old stupid smile on her face as we are led to assume that she sees her father flying because he actually was Birdman the whole time. And then the movie ends. Um, so, Corwin, give me the, your, your, now we've gone through the whole entirety of it, give me your full thoughts on this ending. So, again, I, I kind of took the nose as, you know, the way it was shaped and all that as being more of a, a beak-like nose than what he had originally. Again, that's neither here nor there. It really doesn't matter all that much to begin with. Um, but I, I like that it was uncertain almost. Uh, I guess that's not necessarily the right term for it, but it is vague and open-ended to the extent where at no point do they ever show a level of certainty for what is and is not reality. And I like that it maintained that through the end of the film. Um, I don't know if I have any significant points to add for the ending. Um, well, what's your interpretation of it? Whether or not he was or was not Birdman. Yeah. How do, how do you read that ending? Um, I'll take it that he was, at least it's, it's shown that he was, you know, at no point throughout the rest of the film, do they really show that anyone else is keen to what's going on inside his head. And therefore I'm of the belief that that is kind of just specific to just what he's going through. So the fact that Emma Stone sees him in the air rather on the ground and showing that face of like shock, awe, but also delight. Um, I would be inclined to believe that it's more of a um that he would be Birdman. Okay. All right. I'm with you. So, I'll, uh, I, I think he died. I think, so, so he's clearly still detached from, because I, I read the nose thing as he's still detached from reality. Because Birdman's taking a shit right next to him. You know what I mean? Like, the, the guy's still there. Like, and I, I think we're to read the physical appearance of Birdman in addition to the voice of Birdman as being, you know, his, his sign that shit ain't right up in the domicile, you know, my head's still fucked up. Um, and the fact that his nose is still there, I, I, I read that as being, I'm not accepting my reality here. My face is fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I am indestructible. I'm a fucking mm. superhero. And he goes over to the window, and he sees the birds flying, and in his poor mental state, he thinks he can fly and fucking kills himself. Emma Stone comes in. Now, she, as we've seen throughout the movie, is also not in her best place. She is fresh out of rehab. She's had a pretty tough life. She is, no, addiction is a disease, it is a mental disease. And she is she has also had her fair share of problems here. And she looks down 
first and then looks up. I think in my reading of it, she sees her dad dead on the ground, you know, 20, 30 stories down. She detaches no from reality herself and instead rejects the reality she's in, looks up, okay. choosing to also believe her father became Birdman. Okay. I, I don't disagree. I still disagree on the nose, but I, I do like that interpretation. And honestly, it, it's more fitting for the rest of this film than him actually being Birdman. Because, um, because they give you too many signs that he's not, you know? Right. It's, it's too almost forced showing that, you know, this guy's fucking nutty. So I'm with you. I I will believe it. Um, you know, I'll, I will. I will open my eyes to that idea the next time I watch it. I will not open my eyes to him faking his nose job because you're just you're wrong there, and I refuse to accept that. You know what's funny is every time I've given my opinion on this ending, that has been the exact reaction I've gotten. That you all think right, the nose is fake. Yeah. <laughs> It's that, it's that, uh, like, um, yeah, I could totally see Emma Stone detaching from reality and thinking her dad's Birdman, but that nose is fucking, it's fucking there, man. <laughs> like, it's totally there. Like, no one, no one buys the nose part. I think, I think the nose is, 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 is a, is a dog whistle for lunacy. Dog whistle for lunacy. Okay, <laughs> I'll take it. Um, yeah, yeah, so I guess, I guess that's kind of it. Do you have any other thoughts on it? Um, I'm very, very happy that, uh, we got me to go back, got me that we were <sighs> fucking Christ. Words are difficult. I am very happy. I watched this movie a second time and can actually appreciate it for what it is and what was, what it was intended to do. Right on, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you were open-minded enough for that as well. Um, Oh, final ratings and reviews. I for, totally forgot about that part. I was getting ready to go this, uh, move into the next part of the show. I really did not want to give it uh, a five. I thought it, it wasn't quite deserving. It didn't have that X factor. The more of it I watched, uh, the more I thought I, I cannot in good faith give it anything less. You're going five? I'm going five. Right on. I think I'm going to go four and a half. Which I feel conflicted about, but I think is also where I'm going to end up. Because I really enjoy this movie, and I don't know what more it could really be doing for me. But, you know, we've talked about it before. There's there's some mental block between four and a half and five that is, you know, ineffable. So I have no great explanation for why I can't go full, full bore for the five, but... I'm going to sit there on it at the at the four and a half. Okay. I, I will be right there with you and understanding why. I totally get it. All right. Then uh, let's go into, uh, into next week's picks. We're going Christmas themed for next week. Uh, next week's episode will be coming out Tuesday, December 22nd. So it's our last opportunity to get festive before um, the big X. So right, we're putting the X back in Christmas. Um, I'm putting three of them in there. 
Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Slurp it. <laughs> oh, God, oh, my mother's going to listen to this episode, isn't she? This is going to yeah, be the one. This is going to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ma, I love choking on dick. <laughs> I love Michael Keaton's bald fucking head. Oh, yeah. When Edward Norton hangs dong in this, oh, it got me rock fucking hard. Oh, you thought it was enormous. <laughs> oh. That was a. I really hope of all the lines in this film that that one was improv. <laughs> I wish. I hope. I believe. Um, so, anyway, <laughs> we're going Christmas themed for the picks. Um, shout out to my Jews. I know we never do Jew movies, um, or there's never like Hanukkah movies. Out of curiosity, I looked up a list of Hanukkah movies to see like what were the best Hanukkah mm-hmm. movies. And half the movies on the Hanukkah movie list weren't even about Hanukkah, just loosely about Jewish people doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, uh, I was, I was upset. It's like, it's like, look, man, I love watching Fiddler on the Roof. I'll watch Fiddler on the Roof every week. The shit ain't about Hanukkah. <laughs> I didn't um, know Fiddler on the Roof was about Jewish people. Are you fucking serious? I've never seen Fiddler on the Roof, so. Oh, yeah. It makes it's, it difficult. It's, it's, it's like, dude, get two minutes into it. You'll discover it's about Jews. Um, anyway. <laughs> is it a guy talking with a very nasally voice? Uh, I mean, the lead actor's name is Topol. Okay. That's the actor's yeah. name, not the character. That's all uh, I need to say. A- any- anyway. You had me at hello. Yeah. Fuck Jerry Maguire. Hate that movie. Uh, Corwin, what is it's your... Yeah, it's from Jerry Maguire. Huh. Yeah, okay. Tom Cruise Sorry. comes back in, and Renee Zellweger, whoever it is, is like, you had me at hello. It's like, well, then why'd you let him talk, you fucking idiot? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> hate that fucking movie. What yeah. is your... Uh, Christmas holiday pick for next week. The most Christmas of all Christmas movies. The classic Christmas movie. The tradition for New Year's Eve in my household, wherever that house may be. Die Hard. The movie that started Christmas. It's true. <laughs> little, little, little known fact. The first Christmas was in 1989 when Die Hard came out. Nakatomi Plaza was actually the uh, Christian name for uh, Bethlehem in Israel. Yeah, sorry, nineteen eighty-eight when Die Hard came out. I apologize. Could have sworn it was eighty-nine. Classic eighties anyway. pick. Or I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's 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 forty stories of sheer adventure, Corwin. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Hans Gruber, man. I love it. I can't wait. Um. I am going to pick for 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 my film uh, a another recent film another 2020 pick. It's on Hulu. It's called Happiest Season. It's about lesbians during Christmas. What more uh, could you want? Yeah. Um, so What's that's the name of that? I feel like I'm going to need to write that down because that's not something I'll remember. Luckily, if you log into the Hulu app, they're like really pushing it. But it's called Happiest Season. That sounds like something I'm really going to hate. Um, I don't think you're going to like, so spoiler, or, or, uh, uh, I don't know, it's not a spoiler or anything. Um, uh, side note, I don't know what you would say. Uh, I actually watched this already like a week or two ago when it first launched because I saw it came out. My girlfriend and I like, were like, Hey, um, it's, uh, it's, it's fucking Dan Levy. We love Dan Levy. Let's watch this movie. Um, we love Dan Levy. Love Dan Levy. Love Eugene Levy. Love the Levies. Um, and so we ended up watching it, but I, I have many opinions. Um, so I want Corwin to watch it too. I don't think you're going to like it. Um, 
I have a lot of gripes about it, but I think the gripes I have are interesting um, because <laughs> I am interesting and my opinions are the only opinions that matter. And you will hear them, people. You will all hear them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think there's an interesting conversation about these types of movies um, that we can have with this movie in particular. So I'm interested in to hear your thoughts on it. And uh, it's the holidays. I need a movie to rewatch. I'll rewatch this. Yeah, I just I really love going into a film that you even say, "Oh, you're going to fucking hate it." Ugh. Well, I I I think I don't think you're going to like it, but I think there's a very constructive conversation around this movie that is really going to make the viewing experience worth it. Which I'm totally fine with. Yeah. Um All right. Then uh, we'll get on out of here. So, if, uh, so the the picks are 1988's Die Hard and 2020's Happiest Season. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. Chastise us, adulate <laughs> us. We're here for it all. Um, and until next week, y'all have a good one. Bye.